Welcome to Sunday Night Dinner, a podcast that cooks. I'm Suzanne Hancock. So it's, it's, it's early to mid-60s, is kind of what I really remember. And Sunday dinners were mainly in front of the television. We had a black and white TV, and there was the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner hour. There was uh, <laughs> Walt Disney, and then there was the Ed Sullivan Show. So, like, it was a full-on dinner. So there'd be, you know, steak or a roast chicken or roast beef. And we were allowed, uh, it's the only day of the week we were allowed to watch television and have dinner at the same time. Mid-century Scandinavian furniture was really big. So my mom bought, it was kind of like a bench really, and these, these, these smaller like stool-like things were parked underneath the bench during the week. Never really used them. <clears throat> but on Sundays, everybody got their own little stool thing, and we could put our plate on there. Um, but we would be able to watch and eat at the same time. My name is Jamie Kennedy, and I'm a cook. I live in Toronto, and I have a farm in Prince Edward County. And that's where I met him at the farm in his barn where he was slicing parchment paper for Christmas cake. And I could totally relate to his Sunday night dinner memories. For me, as a kid, it was Walt Disney and then 60 Minutes, but the setup was the same. The food was different too. The roast chicken thing never happened in my house. It was popcorn for dinner and ice cream for dessert, seriously. But we were all there eating and watching. And like that tradition, Jamie's yearly Christmas cake tradition goes back to his childhood as well. The farm that Jamie owns is huge. There are a few unused structures on the land that look like they have stories to tell, and it's all unadorned in a beautiful way. It's in Prince Edward County, technically an island of about a thousand square kilometers in southern Ontario. It's a two-hour drive east of Toronto and a three-hour drive south of Ottawa, and it's known for its vineyards and fertile soil. It's a really beautiful area. The whole drive home after meeting with Jamie, I kept thinking, why am I going back to the city? There was once a railway that ran through the county to collect all the goods that farmers were producing because it was a place of abundant crops and growth. The railway's no longer there, but that hasn't stopped people like Jamie and other farmers and winemakers from celebrating that bounty. The kitchen in Jamie's barn is big, rustic, and welcoming. At the time that I visited him, the only water source was outside, the oven was the heat source, and there was a ton of space. His dog Champ was lying near the door, and his neighbor's horses were just outside the window. This is where Jamie puts on his summer dinner series, perhaps the most farm-to-table he's ever been. These dinners happen every Saturday night from the end of May until the beginning of October, right here on the farm, and the dining room is the barn where Jamie's baking. He's been called the first celebrity chef in Canada, and he's one of the most influential and admired chefs around. He's a longtime local food advocate and a member of the Order of Canada. It's been a long adventure for Jamie, who started his career when he was only 20, as one of the head chefs at Scaramouche, one of the best restaurants in Canada. So, this isn't Sunday dinner. <laughs> this Sunday is, cake. This is, yeah, you know, 
So here we are in the at the farm in my kitchen, and this this has become my home kitchen. This this building, it's where we stage the summer dinner series in the summer. But it's now my kitchen, where for years, for the last 30 years or more, I've always had a kitchen in the city, like a commercial kitchen. And at the end of March 2015, I gave up. My, the last of my restaurants and along with that went the kitchen. It's really remarkable. You don't need a lot to have a commercial space. It's more about space. If you have the space and uh, some simple connections to electricity and to water with um, it's fairly rudimentary but it works. It works and I'm actually amazed how well it works. So this is home and this is what, here we are, we're almost in December and I have a tradition of making Christmas cake, which really stems back to my childhood. Um, I remember my mom read in the newspaper about, it was during the Kennedy administration in the US, and there was a story, a feature story about Christmas at the White House and what Jackie Kennedy was going to serve her family, you know. And there are recipes. The Christmas cake was one of the recipes, and so this is one that I use. Yeah, so it's the same recipe. Yeah, it's the same recipe, and I've been making it forever. I do so. I do other things too that my mom used to do every year. Um, there was this chicken liver pate. There was dessert called Cherry's Jubilee mm -hmm. that she made. There were some like you know vegetable dishes that were served with turkey, and there was turkey, and you know the whole nine yards. So how many eggs are you? This is 32 eggs. This is, so I'm separating these eggs and um, I, have to, I have to read the recipe actually. I have to figure it out <laughs> how it's going to go. And you can check out the recipe on our website, sundaynightdinnerpodcast.com. The recipe on our site makes three loaf pan cakes, but if you want to make more, you can easily double or triple it. Depends on how much you like Christmas cake. Or how much you think people around you like Christmas cake. And it seems that people either love it or hate it. Most cakes are boozy and dense, and probably not what you need near Christmas dinner. But for some it's comforting, and making it can be meditative, as you'll hear with Jamie. There's a lot of eggs and butter. <laughs> of course. And sugar. But what I like about this this one is it's a little bit lighter than a lot of Christmas cakes. So there, I've, I've lined the uh, cake forms. So I should turn the oven on. 275. 275. In high school, Jamie started a culinary club. They'd pick a region, research it, and plan a menu. They did Italy, Russia, Mexico, and Burgundy. It was chaperoned because they were allowed wine, ah, the late 60s, and perhaps because of this experience, when he was looking for a job after graduating, he hit up Toronto restaurants and ended up at the Windsor Arms Hotel, unbeknownst to him, one of the most important places furthering food culture in the city. After finishing his apprenticeship, he went to Europe and had one of the most memorable meals of his life. I spent some time in England and then went over to France and I hitchhiked from Paris down to Barcelona. It's 
I had a guide where youth hostels were. So I'd set my target for this particular day at a youth hostel in this town in the south of France somewhere. So I made it there, uh, hitchhiking, and it was around maybe seven in the evening. I wound up in this little village and went to the center of the village and just looked for a restaurant. And it seemed like they, the whole place, had, like they rolled up the sidewalks at six o'clock in the afternoon in the, in, the, in the evening. I was like, what the hell? This was in December, like early, early December. It was getting dark. It was dark. And I was starving and nothing seemed to be open. I saw a light and I went to the light and I see this guy inside and he's moving around in there. And so I walked in and he looked at me and I said, you know, can I get some dinner? And he said, okay. And I sat down and he brought me like three courses. I didn't see a menu. So he just plunked a bottle of wine down, half a loaf of bread, and brought me a soup. Then he brought me a, like a, a bean dish green beans and shelling beans. It was all this like bean thing. And a braised veal dish. And then cheeses. So I had all of this food and the food was absolutely delicious. It was an absolutely unforgettable and memorable meal. And then what made it extra memorable was that at the end, I got up and I, I paid the man. And then all these people appeared from the kitchen that had been back there and a, some wait staff and they sat down. And what I realized was that was their dinner that he had given me. But like real old school guy, he's, he was the patron of the place. He had eye contact with me. He couldn't turn me away. Like they had basically closed for the day and they were just sitting down to have their, their dinner. But he delayed it more than an hour so that he could serve this young traveler. And that's what I took away with from me. It was an amazing meal, but it was that, that, that moment of understanding what hospitality is. I guarantee there are countless diners out there who would say that that's exactly what Jamie has done in his restaurants. He's made them feel welcome. Let's go back to that long adventure. When he was 20, after living in Europe for a couple of years and doing an apprenticeship alongside Michael Stadlander, Jamie and Michael came to Canada as head chefs at Scaramouche, which revolutionized fine dining in Canada and started Jamie's own desire to source local ingredients and support local farmers. After Scaramouche, Jamie opened a number of restaurants, including Palmerston, Jamie Kennedy at the Rom, J.K. Winebar, J.K. at the Gardener, and Gilead. There were some rough times in there, some times where Jamie overextended himself, his words, and the global financial crisis didn't help. His costs were high, he continued to source local products, and as crazy as it seems, one of the best chefs in Canada couldn't afford to own a restaurant. He was near bankruptcy at one point, and then, as he mentioned earlier, he sold it all. And now his kitchen is here, at the farm where he puts on the summer dinner series. We talked about his farm-to-table philosophy and how important local food is to him. 
I mean, it's not for everybody, right? Wanting to make that connection between a farm and a dining experience. In right in, the, right in situ, um, that's always resonated with me. And so perhaps, you know, you could argue that all the time that I was spending in the city at restaurants, I was wishing I was somewhere else. And maybe that's true a little bit. There's something about the seasonality of, of having a summer dinner series, which leaves the rest of the year kind of as a blank slate. Here we are kind of 42 years later. So I started off working full time in 1974 and 2016 was the first year of, this, of the dinner series and what I've found is that the dinner series brings to bear all of the experience that I've had and packages it in a way that's um, as close to my ideal as possible. It's, I've tapped into all of my experience of the, of the last 42 years, it's very true. And so the product of that is something that is so close to what my ideology is about cooking and my views on cooking, my views on gastronomy, my views on local provenance of food, local procurement practices, reigniting rural economies. I understand now that really the 20th century was a big mistake for us in so many, so many ways, you know, with the industrialization of food, the globalization of food economies, taking knowledge away from people so they lost their own food sovereignty in communities all around the world. This is what happened in the 20th century. And there were good reasons for it, or reasons for it, I don't know how good they were, but there were reasons for it. And I think now there's this shift happening where people are realizing that, you know what, that wasn't so great. There's great things that we've taken from the uh, 20th century, the evolution of the information technology, technology in general, but a lot of the, the big things that we did around industry were kind of mis, mis, misguided, I think. Let's go back for a moment to that boy who grew up in Don Mills, Ontario. How did he become a chef and an advocate? I, don't, I really don't know, but I always had a fascination with, with the kind of the theatrical nature of restaurants. I love that kind of magical feeling of going. We didn't go to restaurants much. You know, my parents were not well off by any means, but you know, and I, and I still look for it when I go out in a restaurant. I, I, I still appreciate that it's a performance, and the cooks are performing, the front of house staff are all performing, and as a guest, you have a role, right, to complete the whole picture. And I love that. I love the ritual of dining. Dining out in restaurants, certainly dining in at home, all of it, all about anything to do with dining, I love. I just love what happens around a table, not just about the food and the service and the wine, but when you're served all those things, what happens to you as a person and, and the people around you, you're suddenly like <clears throat> freed, untethered from your earthly bounds, really. You don't have the responsibility of taking care of yourself. Someone else is doing that for that period of time. and. You know, maybe you've got a little buzz from the wine and the conversation and really the conversation can really take off in those moments around the table. And I've, I've experienced it and I, I witness it, observe it here. It gives me great satisfaction to be here. And then hearing the level of conversation rise in the room 
And often with wine and food dinners, there is this annoying phenomenon where winemakers will get up and they'll start introducing the next wine. And so they, the whole room has to hush while that happens. Or you know, often if I'm doing a gig somewhere, they'll want me to introduce each course. I'm just, I don't like to do it. Because for me, a dining experience has its own cadence and people, they're part of that, like part of that whole ritual of dining is that opening up in the conversation, like opening it, becoming less inhibited, opening up and being expansive with your companions around the table as you're dining. Let's get back to those cakes. And the thing that caught my eye about this was that instead of using, you know, baking soda and baking powder, which you often see in cakes, this recipe uses egg whites, like whipped egg whites, so that's why I was separating the yolks from the whites. So you're chopping some butter. <laughs> A lot of butter. Into... I always think of Julia Child, and whenever there's butter involved. <laughs> I used to watch her as a child, actually. And I named my daughter Julia after her. Because it's interesting to see like the effect that she had and how she the contribution that she made to you know, you could you could argue that she was she gave permission for Americans to explore their own their own um, gastronomy by because the French gastronomy was so scary, you know, people didn't think that they could do it. It was in the realm of either you were born French and learned these dishes from your grandmother, or you were a professional chef. But she kind of changed all that by making it approachable and writing that book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Mm -hmm. So now, in a large bowl, I'm creaming the butter with the confectioner's sugar. Okay, so that's going to be in this machine. Cool. Speaking of French, just as Jamie is known for being the chef of Scaramouche, he's also known for his French fries. In his masterful cookbook, J.K., The Jamie Kennedy Cookbook, he writes that French fries for him started as a political statement. He realized early on that few people could afford to eat in the fancy restaurants of the world, and he wanted to appeal to a broader audience. In the early 80s, he lived in Paris and had a girlfriend who worked at the Eiffel Tower. While he waited for her at the base of the tower, a woman would roll up in a van and sell French fries. And they were great. He knew he could do the same thing in Canada and elevate the usual fried potatoes by using the best potatoes and oil and the right blend of herbs. Jamie has four kids, one daughter, Julia, who lives in L.A., and three sons, Micah, Jackson, and Niall, in Toronto, who've taken over the French fry business, among other things. They move around between farmer's markets and people hire J.K. Fries for events. They'll be selling them again next spring in Wellington, Ontario, at the Wellington Farmer's Market. When they were growing up, 
Sundays were also a family meal, and for my own selfish reasons, I was relieved to hear that even Jamie had some picky eaters in his house. Sunday was a quiet day at home. The rest of the week was working very hard at the restaurant, night and day kind of thing. And so Sunday was really kind of like, kind of catatonic. Yes, I mean, I very much believe in having dinner together as much as possible. So when I had my restaurants and I had my children, you know, you're trying to do everything at once, right? It's always just the way life is. You're throwing this. <laughs> this is what you got to do. You got to make a living. You got to have a family. You got to balance your life. You got to do everything. And it's a lot. It's a lot to ask. But, you know, you do your best. And so having dinner together was one of the things I valued a lot. So often I would um, take it outside because the kids love to be outside. Even if we weren't sitting outside, I would grill something on Sunday nights, even in the winter, you know. The grill was just outside the door where the TV room was, and my kids loved to watch television and video games and all of that, and mm -hmm. I did nothing to try to control that. Did you have any picky kids? Yeah. Yeah? So I think, I think, um, I think kids, they kind of go through this different, these different periods, right? Totally. I think, like at the beginning, like when they were really young, and I was giving, they would eat anything. Yeah. They didn't have any prejudices. And then they start to use food as a weapon because it's the only thing that they can control. Yeah. They can control what they're putting in their mouth. You know, that's, yeah. I remember talking, I was, I was in therapy for a while. <laughs> I remember asking my therapist, you know, what was that all about? Did they, you know, they just shut down eating? And they said, well, you know, think about it. That's the only thing they control. They're always being told what to do and they can at least argue against eating something and take a stand against something and, yeah. and that kind of feels good for them in a way. Mm -hmm. So they go through that period where they're eating nothing. Like my daughter, she only ate pasta with, with butter and parmesan cheese. But then she started to really get into what I was doing, you know, with the restaurants and always having different foods. She started to embrace that culture more. And now she eats everything. Well, maybe not Christmas cake. Jamie said he's the only one in the family who likes Christmas cake, so he'll give most of these cakes away as gifts. The butter and sugar were light and fluffy, and then Jamie added the egg yolks one at a time until the dough was the most beautiful bright yellow. Check out our website for photos. And then he added the fruit. I haven't mentioned the fruit yet, but it was spectacular a combination of sour cherries, currants, and raisins that he'd been soaking in booze for three years. Don't worry, you don't have to have fruit that you've been soaking in booze for three years, but it should soak for a month or so. So if you're excited to make these cakes, take that into consideration. You'll soak them in brandy or amber rum. So you're putting some yolks in there. Yeah, isn't that a great color? Wow. What am I supposed to do now? The thing about like pastry preparation is flies all, everywhere. It's all so precise. You have to do things. Oh right, yes. Uh, so oh, now I get to put in the fruit and then the flour. Okay, good. All right, so I'm gonna get this out of here. Put it in a big bowl 
and put in half the fruit. Stir in the flour, beat the egg whites, and fold in. Okay, so then we're almost there. Is that regular flour, Jamie, yeah. or is that you? Yeah. It's unbleached, uh, all-purpose flour. Have you always, or do you like baking? Have you? I do. Yeah. You do. Yeah. I really do. Because it's it's different, different than than uh, savory cooking mainly. Uh, I mean, mostly, not always, but most of the time. It's like this thing where you're just. Usually, it's 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 in the time of day where you're not dealing with orders in the restaurant. Because not this is not something you do in the middle of dinner service. <laughs> You know, it's a different, different discipline, and sometimes it's nice to do that. Butter, confectioner, sugar, fruit, and flour. So far, yeah. I'm gonna roll in uh, and egg yolks, right? There's yes, and egg, egg yolks. yolks yes. And then now I'm gonna beat egg whites and put them in here, and then it'll go into the forms. The cakes went in the oven, and Jamie and Champ took me on a tour of the farm. He showed me the fields, the grapevines, the no longer used railway, and he showed me where he brings the guests for the summer dinner series. These are cherry trees, and this is actually one of my favorite spots on the whole property, yeah. as you can see. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I bring people here, so it gives them a chance to look around and settle into the natural environment here. So we bring them right up here. I set up a little bar. We usually have a grill going. I bring out my deep fryer. People get french fries. So we've got other orders. And uh, this is where it happens, right here. You know, we call the cooking terroir-based gastronomy, right? So it can be practiced anywhere. It's not specific to Prince Edward County <laughs> by any means. But it's something, if you look at it, it's, it's, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's something like that people before they could you know, transport themselves from one place to another, that's how their, their food culture evolved because they lived in a certain place. What could grow there, whether it's coming out of the ground or whether it's animals or if they live by a body of water. <clears throat> um, oh yeah, we're gonna walk out. Okay. If they live by a body of water, what's coming out of the water. These are all the things that, that lead to the establishment of a, of a tradition for that place and what makes it different from another place. So this, the spirit of what, what I do here is all about differentiation as well. So I try to remain true to what's going on around here uh, and if I went to Calgary, I would expect or want to have an experience. I'd be excited to have an experience about someone who's using whatever influences they have around there as exponents of that particular place and that culture. And so I, 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 I learn through dining in a place what that place is about. I would expect to learn a little bit about history and certainly learn about who the people are, who the players are right now, and what the influences were, what's, how it came to be in this place. That's, I'm really curious about all that. So 
So I practice it here, and I like to see it practiced everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a great you know opportunity to 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 see what you can do. We walked around for a while longer, and Jamie told me some of his plans for the next summer dinner series. And he seemed genuinely excited and so very comfortable in this place. It made me think of something he said earlier in the day about how for a long time he thrived in that super intense restaurant environment. There's something about restaurant culture which, you know, it depends on people being passionate about that to, to succeed as a phenomenon in restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, which I, I really appreciate. And I was that person myself for so many years. But this is just different, and it's, it suits me, and I've landed, and I think I'm really fortunate. Like, who, who, who gets to do that? You know, to actually, you know, live out what their, 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 their philosophy that's closest to their heart, you know, um, in a way, and take control of it. And it's, I feel blessed. I feel really lucky. Huge thanks to Chef Jamie Kennedy and Champ. It was a really beautiful day in Prince Edward County. Thanks for being so hospitable and for feeding me lunch. To find out more about the Summer Dinner Series and to sign up to hear about other upcoming events, you can head to jamiekennedy.ca. There's even a house on the farm that Jamie rents out, and you can find out more about that on his website as well. To subscribe to the podcast, head to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. That way, each new episode will automatically be downloaded into your account. And we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Find the links on the website, sundaynightdinnerpodcast.com. There are lots of great photos of Jamie on the farm up there, too. Next episode, you'll hear Sharon Hapton of Soup Sisters making Jan Arden's chicken soup. Don't miss it. She's amazing. Thanks as well to Chef Michael Dixon and to Colin McAdam. Sunday Night Dinner is produced by Suzanne Hancock, music by J.J. Ibsen. Thanks for listening. See you soon.